Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2 as we can continue our study on Jesus visiting the temple. John chapter 2. Starting with verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables." And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus has performed his first miracle in the turning of water into wine. And verse 11 states that this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. The miracle that Jesus performed of turning water into wine made it known that Jesus was what John chapter 1 says that he is. He's part of the Godhead. He's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is part of the Trinity. Jesus, in verse 11, also states that his disciples believed on him. In verses 12 and 13, we read, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem, and we're going to see the first cleansing of the temple, the second cleansing of the temple is found in Matthew chapter 21 and Mark chapter 11, and also Luke chapter 19. He's coming to the temple to inspect the temple, and if the temple fails its inspection, he will come back for a second inspection. And if it fails a second inspection, the temple will end up being destroyed. There's a connection here, as we saw last Sabbath, 
with Leviticus chapter 14, verses 33 through 57, where if the leprous house fails inspection enough times, the house will be destroyed. If the temple fails the first inspection, Jesus will be back. One other point to remember is that Jesus is bringing witnesses with him. He has his disciples with him. And in scripture, witnesses to evil activity are very important. As we see as an example, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 14, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. We are seeing the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles are set aside for them to come to worship. The Gentiles, unlike the Jews, could not go any further. It was, they had to stop. And even this place of prayer and worship that had been set aside for them has been polluted by being turned into a house of merchandise, an emporium. It's kind of like combining Wall Street and the world's largest zoo with all of the sounds and all of the smells. There were great opportunities for deception and abuse of God's covenant people in God's house. And that is what happened. In verses 15 and 16, and when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. The leaders of the people of God should always have been ready for an inspection of God's house by God himself. These leaders certainly did not want to, would not want to flunk the inspection like Sodom and Gomorrah did. Inspection, failure, and judgment. Cleansing. This inspection by Jesus will lead to violence on the part of Jesus. The Gentiles have been sinned against. God's people of a whole, as a whole have been sinned against. The vulnerable have been sinned against. Most importantly, God has been sinned against. It's very important here, and we see it throughout Scripture, the importance of not treating the vulnerable in an ungodly way. If we are in authority, we need to use our authority in a biblical manner. An older way of language that I think we've lost today, and part of the reason has to do with certain things that have gone, around, gone on in our society, is the biblical idea of superiors and, and inferiors. And I know that those terms can be misused, such as because you are a fill-in-the-blank, you are inferior. And because I am fill-in-the-blank, I'm superior to you. I'm better than you. I was born better than you. You'll never be as good as I am. And that's the type of way in which that language can be used. However, there's a biblical way in which that language has been historically used by Reformed Christians. And that having to do with 
authority and those under authority. For example, a father is a superior in authority over his household. His wife and children are inferior as far as authority is concerned. And we must never mix that up with godliness. For example, a husband may be the superior in the house as far as authority is concerned, but his wife may be a lot more godly than what he is. For that matter, he may not even be a Christian, and she is. We must use the authority that God has given us in a biblical manner. If God has put you in a position of superiority as far as your position is concerned, you must use that in a godly manner. Do not abuse your God-given authority over others. Do not take advantage of the vulnerable, no matter what your position is in life. Now, sometimes, because, sometimes the person in authority may be the one that's vulnerable. Often, pastors are attacked in an ungodly way. Even though the people in the pew may be under the authority of the pastor in the session, sometimes the tables get turned. Doesn't matter what situation you're in. You must not take advantage of the vulnerable. We must never do that. When mistreated by people who are taking advantage of you, you are vulnerable and they take advantage of you. When mistreated, never lower yourself to the other person's level. I know in my own situation as a pastor, there have been times when people have seen I've been vulnerable and they've taken advantage of it. However, it works the other way too. Sometimes pastors or elders or people in the church that have a certain amount of authority abuse that authority and hurt their people. But when you're in the position of being mistreated, taken advantage of, Never lower yourself to those people. Don't ever lower yourself to the level of those people. If you are a father, head of the home, and you're being mistreated by people in, the, in a church situation or among other Christians, you may be tempted to lash out, to get back. But always remember, there are people watching you. If you have children, your children are watching what you do. Your children may remember 20 years later that they saw their father being mistreated and no matter how badly he was mistreated, he never lowered himself to the level of the people who were persecuting him. This is true of all of us, that we must never lower ourselves. People are watching. When mistreated, remember that this is an opportunity to become more godly. 
I can think of a situation that Heather and I have gone through in the last year, last few years, where we've just not known what to do. We've gone through a situation that has been extremely painful. What do we do? Well, one of the things that I ended up learning through my situation, where we were being mistreated, we were being abused, and that was God was teaching me that I needed to repent of certain sins. When I saw how we were being treated, I also saw that there were certain things in my life that I needed to deal with. So when you're mistreated by other people, it's an opportunity to, be, to grow in godliness in the way that you act, but also the way that you think and your relationship with God. Is it possible that I have done some of these things to other people and forgotten about it? Is it possible that I need to go to other people and ask them for forgiveness and try to make it right? Because I have done not necessarily the exact same thing. And some people might just brush it off and say, well, yes, I've done that sort of thing once in a while, but nothing compared to the way that I'm being treated now. That excuse doesn't fly with God. If we've mistreated people even in the smallest way, we need to deal with that. And not just say, well, it's nothing compared to the way I, what I'm going through now. Remember, when you're mistreated by people who see that you are vulnerable and take advantage of it, remember that this is an opportunity to become more godly. Also remember that no matter what, no matter what, God is in charge. You may get to the place where you don't know how to pray, you don't know how to think, you just are so flustered because of the way you're being treated. Pray and do what is right. And don't take the matter into your own hands and do something that's ungodly because you want to get back at that other person that you want to win. You just can't take it any longer and you are going to lash out. Pray and do what is right. When we take the matter into our own hands, what do we end up having to do later on? Repent, ask for forgiveness, try to make right things right, but often it's very difficult to do that because we've created such a mess. But when we put it into God's hands, even the times in which we can see in Scripture that it's all right to just say, God, please judge that person. You notice you're not doing anything to that person. We don't push buttons, and then God does something, and then we're responsible for what God does. We see in the book of Psalms, that, and we, we can see in Scripture, there are times to cry out to God and say, that person, please judge that person. Bring that person to repentance. But don't take it into your own hands. And all of this, never forget the gospel. The story that we're reading about, learning about ungodly individuals, ungodly religious leaders who are in authority and taking advantage of vulnerable people. 
These people are going to go to hell, right? These Pharisees that we read about elsewhere, they're all going to hell. There's no hope for them. But then in the book of Acts, what do we see? I believe it's thousands of priests. Remember who's in control of the temple, largely? Priestly class. Who's in control of all this junk going on right now? The priestly class. Who repented in the book of Acts? Priests. And then there's that awful, pathetic, ugly person who hated Christians, or at least hated the, I guess, yeah, hated Christians, hated Christianity, went around persecuting Christians, was going to go on a certain road to do some more damage, except something happened. Holy Spirit changed him. A Pharisee. Spiritual garbage. Remember the covenant, but still, as far as his life is concerned, spiritual garbage. What did the Holy Spirit do? Took someone who was not just dead, but obviously dead, and gave him life. Never forget, through all the junk you may go through in life and persecution you may go through in life, don't forget the gospel. It's awfully easy to forget. You start going, us and them, us and them, us and them. Also, tied in with the gospel, be ready to forgive when that person wants to make things right and biblically repents. It's really easy to just hold on to that and hold on to that and not be ready to repent. So when that person does actually repent and comes to you, you're not ready to forgive. I'm not ready to forgive because that grudge is so much a part of my life, I can't give that up. Be ready to forgive when the person repents. Let's go on to verse 17. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a den of merchandise, and verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. He is zealous for his fa- the house of his father. Psalm 69, we see that prophecy is fulfilled. This is something that, what's going on here with Jesus is something that is very difficult to identify with. At the same time, it makes so much sense. Imagine when Jesus is in his father's house, he sees what is going on, that there is a mixture of perfect love and perfect hatred going on at the very same time. He has a love for his father, a love for his father's house. But at the same time, he hates what's going on. And these two are there together. You may be told, you know, it's, you never hate anything. You never hate any. No, there is a time to hate. 
what's going on in our lives. But we're also supposed to be loving God and and his kingdom. Perfect love, perfect hatred going on at the same time. The disciples are witnesses. And the disciples tied this event to Psalm 69. Was it wrong for Jesus to be so emotional? Absolutely not. Somebody says, you're getting so emotional. Well, that's not, that's not the problem. What we do and when we get emotional, that's a problem. But there's nothing wrong with showing emotions. God has emotions. It's like when people say, well, it's a sin to hate. Well, are you calling God a sinner? God hates sin. There's nothing wrong in and of itself to be extremely emotional at the right time in the right way. It was not wrong for Jesus to be emotional. It was the absolute right thing to be. Verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? There is such thing. You know, have you ever heard there's no such thing as a stupid question? You know, within its context, it makes a lot of sense. You don't want to get people involved in conversation, perhaps you're a lecturer, perhaps you're a teacher, and you want people to ask questions. And we say there's no such thing as a stupid question. And there's a sense of truth in that. But there is such thing as a stupid question. And you are looking full bore at a stupid question. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? They are practicing perhaps what might be called the art of deflection. We see that in the garden. God talks to Adam. Adam deflects it over to Eve. Eve deflects it over to the serpent. Not going to deal with the situation. We've got to push it off somewhere else. Jesus has done what should have been done instead of confessing what was going on confessing that what they were doing was wrong in the temple, working to change things. The Jews ask an extremely stupid question. Psalm 69 is fulfilled before their very eyes, and yet this dumb question comes out of their mouths. Prophecy comes to life, and yet the stupid and wicked request For what? A sign. It'd be kind of like if a father gave a son a Mercedes. And the son said, but I wanted a car. That is a car. I want a sign. You just saw a sign. What more should one need? You notice in Jesus' ministry, sign after sign after sign after sign after sign is given. And sign after sign is rejected. 
and, and excuses for signs may be, for those rejection may be given time and time again. As I've mentioned before, the thing that used to be, it was big when I was a teenager. Well, if, you know, if, if we could just find Noah's Ark, if we could just find Noah's Ark, how many people would come to God if we just found Noah's Ark? But Noah's Ark wasn't going to save anybody. Never would, never can, never will. Lazarus, brought up from the dead. That'll do it. What's one of the responses? Let's kill Lazarus. Evidence authenticates, but it never saves. Time after time, God authenticates his messenger in Scripture by supernatural acts. And we call these supernatural acts that authenticate God's messenger miracles. Miracles authenticate. It's like God is saying, this is my man. Hear him. Miracles authenticate but do not save. No miracle that Jesus ever performed saved anybody, but they authenticated who he was and what he had to say. Only the Holy Spirit saves. These Jews are acting like, these unregenerate Jews are acting like disobedient children. Have you ever watched a child who is obviously guilty as charged say some of the dumbest things in their defense? And of course, as we get older as adults, we don't do the same thing. I say that with heavy sarcasm. How about adults who are guilty of tailgating or some other offense on the road? They do something just outlandish on the road and you want to let them know, stop doing that, and you put on the horn lightly, and instead of learning from that, they give you the my IQ is one and I can prove it hand gesture salute. Adam can blame Eve, and perhaps God as well, but that's, that's a key word there, can. Difference between can and may. They may not but they can, and they do. Eve can blame the serpent, but the serpent isn't the one to blame. We see in Scripture, blessed are those who mourn, and sometimes we can see that outside of a church, um, or, we, or if we go to a uh, memorial service for somebody's life, go to a funeral service, and the pastor says, blessed are those who mourn. And we are mourning here today. That's not what that means. No, blessed are those who mourn are people who, has to do with people who see the seriousness of their sin and repent of that sin. We see that especially at the time of regeneration. When sins are pointed out to us, 
and we respond by deflection or by anger, we are basically proving that we own that sin and we don't want to give up that sin or how dare you attack me? But that's not what Scripture allows us to do when our sin is pointed out. We are to mourn over this, that sin. We are to be sorrowful. We are called on to repent and to change through the work of the Holy Spirit. These people are not repenting. <clears throat> They're deflecting. Show, them, show us a sign. The Jews asked for a sign, but in actuality, they had been given the God of the universe as a sign. Jesus himself. By asking this question, they are doubling down on their guilt, provoking God to destroy them. And they are asking this question to God, the Son, in front of witnesses. Will these Jewish believers repent and believe? Well, apparently for the time being, the answer is no, they will not. What are some truths that we can gather from these verses? <clears throat> One, do things God's way. Don't add, don't subtract. Do, do what Jesus would have you to do. Notice I said, do what Jesus would have you to do. Question that became big. <clears throat> after the book came out in his steps by Charles Sheldon, was, what would Jesus do? You know, Scripture doesn't call on us to necessarily do what Jesus does. We're to do what Jesus would have us to do. You know, if I walk into a Roman Catholic church or a liberal Presbyterian church, I'm not necessarily told to, you know, tear up the place. I'm told to do what Jesus would have me to do. Now, sometimes, now, there's a lot of overlap there. There are times in which we're supposed to do what Jesus did. But we're certainly not told to do everything that Jesus did. We are to do what Jesus would have us to do. Secondly, listen. Listen when you're accused of something, no matter how young, or how old the person accusing you may be. You say, well, what do you know? You're only 14. What do you know? You're only, you know, I learned a lot from my kids. My kids, there was a basic rule in the house that, you know, if you saw your dad driving in some way, he shouldn't be driving, you tell dad. Didn't matter that they were younger. They have eyes. They can see. They just saw Dad did something dumb. If I run through a stop sign, you know, it doesn't matter how old the person is. It's telling me it. I ran through the stop sign. If I'm 10 over the speed limit, I'm still 10 over the speed limit, no matter who's telling me that. So listen when you are accused of something, no matter how young or how old the accuser may be. And ask yourself the question, what's my automatic excuse when I'm accused of doing something? 
When confronted, number three, when confronted with facts showing that you are not doing things God's way, defend yourself? No, 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 that's not number three. Number three is repent. Don't own that sin. Ownership of certain things can be very good, but owning sins, that's not good. Number four, do not ever come to the conclusion that an action is right because it makes you feel good, despite the fact that the Bible says that it is wrong. You know, all that extra money in the pockets of the sellers and exchangers probably led to a lot of good feelings. The fact remains that the animal selling and the money exchanging had no business being done in the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Number five, do not take advantage of the vulnerable and be honest in your dealings. So you are to be honest in your dealings, but along with that, you don't take advantage of the vulnerable. Don't cut corners. That was one of the, for a good period of time when the pilgrims came over, they treated the Native Americans very well. But then, from what I understand, corners started getting cut. And you know, legally speaking, you can cut corners and still not be doing anything illegal. You're not cutting, you're not committing a crime. But you're cutting a corner here, you're cutting a corner there. You're not really treating people right. And when people are vulnerable, they're in a situation often where they feel like, or just plain can't do anything about it. And they just have to put up with those corners being cut. Do not take advantage of the vulnerable Always be honest in your dealings. Number six, God is number one in importance. God is the standard. Number seven, God regenerates, sanctifies, and glorifies. The Jews could not save themselves. Neither can we. But as the Holy Spirit sanctifies, we are enabled to become more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. The Holy Spirit enables Christians to become more and more like Jesus, and it's our responsibility to respond to that sanctifying work in a biblical way. Number eight, no matter how successful a church may be, godly obedience is always required We see the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Apparently they were doing well. But God didn't think so. And number nine, and finally, remember the good news. The court of the Gentiles should remind us of God's grace that he has shown to the Gentiles. And that no matter how successful... We may think our church is if the gospel is not important to us like the Jews of the time of Jesus 
who were rebelling. We are forgetting our calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for his perfect life, his perfect death, perfect resurrection. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will look at our own lives, preacher included, and through the work of our Holy Spirit, be honest concerning the way that we treat others. For there's so many times where we take advantage of other people. Even as children, taking advantage of our parents, being able to get away with something, being able to manipulate, whatever the case may happen to be. So it even starts at a young age when we are under authority and then keeps going on. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will not be involved in this kind of activity, but instead be fighting against it in a godly way. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and may we never forget the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.